Welcome to the Health and Wellness Talk Show with Dr. Daniela Stein. Dr. Stein is a medical doctor, wellness expert, and assistant clinical professor in family medicine. Her mission is to inspire and enable you to live your best possible life with optimal health. Prevent disease through healthy lifestyle choices and use food as medicine to support longevity, energy, mental clarity, happiness, and well-being. Join us today as she interviews guests, empowering you to live your best life with optimal health. Connect with Dr. Stein at www.daniellastein.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel today. Good day and welcome from me, Dr. Daniela Stein. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Talk Show. Today, I'm so excited to have a guest with me, Dr. Christy Prouse. Welcome, Christy. Thank you. So great to have be with you today. Yeah. It is so exciting to have Dr. Prouse. So in Oakville, Dr. Prouse is the hormonal health expert. She's the founder of the Hormonal Health Institute, and she's a guru. When I moved to Oakville, everyone asked me, do you know Dr. Prouse? Do you know Dr. Prouse? And you have such a good reputation. So I was so excited to have you on my show. Thanks uh, for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to start off by going through your resume. I have it here on my, it is such an impressive resume. I wanted to read it so I don't miss anything. So first, Dr. Prouse has a BA in psychology from the University of Western Ontario. Then she has a BSc in genetics and cell biology from the University of Toronto. And she has an MD from Queen's University. She's done her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology from the University of Calgary. Then she has a fellowship from the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons from Canada as an obstetrician and gynecologist. She's done additional training, and this is very exciting, in anti-aging and regenerative medicine from the University of Southern Florida. And then she's also a professor at the University of Toronto, and she's been a professor previously at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. You're a medical advisor mm -hmm. to, to Incommon Laboratories. You're advisory board member of the Integrative Health Practitioner Journal. Mm -hmm. That is quite mm -hmm. prestigious. That's wonderful. And she's the founder and chief medical officer of the Institute of Hormonal Health. And we'll put the details in the link below. You're in Oakville. Mm -hmm. And you have delivered almost 10,000 babies. <laughs> that is incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that's is, that's that is why something. I'm sitting here. <laughs> and have you know, some information to share on what it's like to burn out after. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that is quite something. I delivered babies as a family physician. You're a gynecologist, but I did deliveries as a family physician. And they're goes quite a lot into a delivery. A delivery isn't something that you just check a box. It's a whole journey with a mom. It is, it's a very high risk occurrence. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot that happens afterwards to mom, to baby. It's quite a big thing. The mm -hmm. whole hormonal shift, it's a whole thing in one delivery and you mm -hmm. deliver 10,000. That's mm -hmm. incredible. Mm -hmm. And then you've spent thousands of patient hours really identifying patterns of hormonal disruption, you know, formulating that treatment approach that's really individualized to every person as every person is really different, an individualized approach and design, designing supplements to really meet that individual needs to, um, uh, with incredible success. And that's mm -hmm. why everyone knows about you. Just, mm -hmm. you. You're not just 
creating that plan and protocol, but you're doing it in such a successful way. Thank you. Tell us a bit about your philosophy. Mm. Well, the, the whole mandate behind the work that I do is to reach the greatest number of people that are in need, maintain the highest quality of care, and to educate in the process. And so that really is what drives uh, everything behind the scenes. It's just, I know that there's a lot of people out there that need help. And, uh, and the conventional medical model often doesn't answer all of their needs. And in fact, most of our patients have been to see quite a few physicians before they make their way to our door, including naturopathic physicians as well. So you are really there to fill that gap mm-hmm. and you understand it very closely because you've gone through that yourself. Yeah. You've had burnout in your career. Tell us a bit about that. Exactly. Yeah, we're talking about uh, you know 15 years ago or so when um, everything just started catching up with me, whether it be the 10,000 babies. Because uh, babies. babies come at night, right? They, they don't just come they, in office hours. All, all hours of the day. Um, I've got twins uh, myself at home, so raising those kids and then um, you know, and then life uh, circumstances, going through a marriage breakdown and the moves and all of the challenges that go along with that. And I really had um, hit a wall where I was not functioning in the way that I was used to functioning. And it was largely at first the fatigue was the most obvious, but then it was the foggy thinking on top of that um, and the irritability and the overwhelm um, that I just wasn't me and I wasn't used to. And you know, at first I could excuse it away as just being stressed, right? And, uh, you know, why wouldn't I be, right? And yet, you know, now I understand, well, yes, it is stress, but stress actually has a physiologic consequence. And hence the work that I do. It's, it's a, a, a predictable fallout of what happens when you have chronic stress. Um, it's measurable, but it's also treatable. And that's the big thing that it's measurable, right? Because that is kind of a new concept that's been a new concept to me when I got into wellness. Because mm. I'm very familiar that with patients who you can see that are very ill and you know it's because of stress, but I didn't realize before that it was measurable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about what is the most common things that you see in your clinic? Yeah, I think hands down, the number one symptom would be fatigue. And there's sort of a classic pattern of fatigue where, um, you know, it can be slow to get up in the morning, um, maybe perk up midday, but then you have this afternoon crash at two to four. Um, you, you may get tired earlier than you ought to, six or seven, but then of course you push through it because it's too early in the day and then you get your second wind and you're up till midnight, <laughs> right? Yeah. So th- there's this sort of classic fatigue pattern, but then that stretches into the overnight too. So the, one of the more common things we also see is a disrupted sleep pattern. Sometimes it's trouble initiating sleep. Uh, most frequently it's an awakening between 2 and 4 a.m., and, um, and then just sort of a, a restless um, sleep or just not a solid um, regenerative, restorative sleep. And so sometimes people can say, yeah, I've, I, I'm sleeping eight or nine hours, but I'm just simply not refreshed um, by morning time. So there's also um, anxiety and depression, but I think more commonly what you end up seeing is the irritability mm-hmm. and the overwhelm and just not coping in the way that you're used to coping. Mm-hmm. And so that's usually the first um, you know, indicator for a lot of patients that, that, that things are not quite right. But again, we excuse it away as being so many things. <laughs> it's COVID fatigue. As little yes. kids, work is hard. You know, it's so yeah. easy to just excuse it away. Right. And then the concern is on the one hand, our quality of life drops now. That, that's one big thing. 
But then something else, and I love the book by Dr. Gabor Mate mm-hmm. on that is when the body says no, because we do cope mm-hmm. with a very high amount of stress mm-hmm. for a very long time. And it's okay because you can push through because you're strong and you can do it. But then what happens 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, when you have this chronic illness that you developed because your body didn't cope with long-standing stress? So addressing your stress is not really an easy way out. It is a smart thing to do for the long run. Mm-hmm. To be mm-hmm. a good mom, to be a good wife, to be a good for yourself on the long run, you have to address those things now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it does. It starts to, it starts to manifest in, in various ways. So the more common, the fatigue and the sleep disruption and the mood disruption. Um, but you're right, if left unchecked, you start to get into um, gastrointestinal issues, hypothyroidism, cancers, um, you know, immune system is compromised, so you're constantly getting infections, high blood pressure, diabetes, right? So there is a predictable fallout in the long term. So as much as we feel sort of crappy in the moment, and that's what we're after fixing, if you don't fix it, well, there's the potential to, to develop something more. And it doesn't need to be that way. And that's the most important yes. <laughs> part of all of this is it really doesn't need to be this way. And that's some work that you do as well with menopause and andropause as well, right? Because some people, would, a lot of people contact me about that and they're like, oh, it's horrible, I hate menopause. But it doesn't have to be. There are things yeah. you can do. Talk about that a bit. Yeah. Well, I think what's important to understand, um, you know, about the stress piece of it related to andropause and menopause is that any hormonal condition that is pre-existing will only be aggravated by an underlying cortisol or a stress hormone um, issue. And so often, um, you know, if women are looking to sail through menopause sort of uneventfully, the best way to do that is to work on the cortisol, your stress hormone piece of it. Yes. So let's chat about about cortisol a bit because you do a lot of work with cortisol. Mm -hmm. Maybe if there are some of our listeners or viewers that's not familiar with cortisol. So what is cortisol? Cortisol, it's um, a hormone that's meant to help us manage with our stress. The problem is, is that the system can be on overload. So, and, and by the way, it is important to understand that stress isn't just the emotional and psychological stressors, it's also physical stressors to the body as well. So infections and inflammation, food sensitivities, environmental toxins, right? And in many ways, um, you know, you could look at stress as being additive and cumulative, particularly on the emotional and psychological front. If we don't get our stuff together, then we often carry it forward. And, um, you know, so at any moment in time, you're really dealing with your lifetime's, you know, worth of stress. And so the physiologic impact, when you think of it in that regard, um, yeah, you can see why a system would actually be drained over time. So what you could do in your 20s and 30s just doesn't seem, uh, you know, as, as doable in your 40s and your 50s. But that's because, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, basically um, on empty and um, that whole additive effect is, is very important. And one of the things that I think, you know, the analogies that works best for my patients is understanding that we are all leaky buckets. It's just some of us are leakier than others. And some of those holes in our leaky buckets are the emotional, psychological stressors, but also the physical stressors. So some holes we can plug very readily and others are a little bit more challenging to plug. And the reality is we're living in a day and age where um, you know, we're going to be, from an environmental perspective anyway, there's going to be a lot of drainage there. So it's not like we're going to be able to plug all of the holes in our bucket, but if we can plug as many as possible, then it becomes much easier to fill our physical bucket and 
Oh, I love how you put it. Yes, that's a very good way. So to summarize, we do need stress. Stress is, well, I won't say we need stress, we need cortisol. Cortisol, <laughs> <laughs> cortisol is a perfectly normal hormone to secrete. That helps us when there is a threat to run. So if there is a lion behind you, your body secretes cortisol. That helps you. It pushes your blood pressure up, your heart rate up. It makes you run faster. So that's a good response. But then typically your body wants that response for an hour. You don't want to run forever. But in our day and age, our stressors stay continuously. You might be in a relationship that's continuously stressful. Mm -hmm. You might be in a job that's continuously stressful, just watching the news, Mm -hmm. be on, on social media. These are stressors. And then also, as you said, those physiological stressors. So I love endurance sports. That's my thing. Mm, but the more mm. I'm learning in this wellness journey, mm-hmm. it is not so ideal to have a high demanding job and to be doing endurance sports. Yeah. And on yeah. the one hand, it helps me to create endorphins and I'm on a high and I love it. Right. But then on the other hand, I'm really learning that it's not as good for my body. Mm. I really have to more focus on just taking a walk in nature. Right. Because it doesn't break your body down such as a marathon would. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and that peace, you know, really can sneak in the back door. And weight management, of course, is one of the biggest things that our patients struggle with. And, you know, there's the go-to mentality that, um, you know, I'm putting on weight, well, therefore I must restrict my calories and work out even harder. But to the body, when it is already in a stressed um, situation, if you intermittently fast, the body will see it as a stressor. If you restrict your calories, the body will see that as a stressor. If you're over-exercising, the body will see that as a stressor. So certainly when somebody is in the thick of cortisol dysregulation and there is an imbalance there, um, yeah, we have to actually dial it back. And I'm not suggesting that exercise isn't a great thing, but you know it does create inflammation in the body and then we call on cortisol to combat that inflammation. So we have to strike that right balance of getting the boost out of our exercise, um, but not overdoing it. So when you are exercising, it should be to the point where you're refreshed. If you're wiped out too much, too frequent, too intense, um, whatever it is, it's too much. (laughs) And And then also to consider about doing different things. I've never really seen yoga or stretching as an exercise, just mm-hmm. because there's no endorphin release. <laughs> yes. But, but, but now to be smart and cognizant about it and to focus maybe on a, stre- a stretching routine, other types of things. You mentioned intermittent fasting. I would love your perspective on it. I, I often have clients who contact me about intermittent fasting. Some people do amazing on it, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. don't. And it's not just for weight loss, it is for the whole preventing cancers, preventing um for longevity. Will you yeah, talk about that a bit? for sure. And I actually don't have any problems with intermittent fasting. That wasn't sort of a blanket statement <laughs> about it. But um, from a hormonal perspective, when our system is under the gun and we are struggling and we are symptomatic, um, intermittent fasting can be a problem. And it's really tied into our blood sugar regulation. And cortisol is a hormone and it is tied to um, our sugars, our blood sugars. And so as cortisol, our stress hormone does this, so does our blood sugars. And that's in many ways what promotes the weight gain and particularly midsection weight gain. So again, I really, in the long run or the bigger picture, I don't have any issues with intermittent fasting, but... Not um, when you burned out. Not Not when you burned out. Yeah, it'll backfire on you, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's the same thing that you said that when people then start also restricting calories. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Jason Fung has a very good explanation for that in his book, The Obesity Code where he explains where they've done studies. And when people eat a lower calorie diet, their body just think I'm being famished. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in a hunger situation and it just holds on. So even as people, and I often see it with clients, I would be surprised at how little they eat. Yes. 
and they would still be very at an unhealthy weight, but it's because they're too restrictive. Yep. So I found the key mm-hmm. really is to push foods, but to push the right foods. Exactly. Like loads of veggies yeah. so that your body knows there's going to be food and your body also knows it's going to come. Yes. Your body isn't, oh, well, sometimes I get food, sometimes I don't. Yeah, absolutely. It goes into, it's going into preservation mode is what it's doing. I mean, the body's smart enough to know that it has to keep us alive, mm. but it will do so at the expense of, well, it'll do so at the expense of things that um, the body won't perceive as essential. Right, so things like hair, skin, and nails, yes. right, fertility, reproduction, that sort of thing takes a hit first because the body's redirected its efforts to the brain and the kidneys and everything that keeps us alive. Um, but that weight piece of it is the body actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's hanging on to a fuel source because it does not know when the next rainy day is going to come. So the idea of small, frequent, healthy meals. Um, yeah, it just allows the body to think, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about that. I know about what's coming. Food. Yeah. Yes. I can, you know, maybe think about not holding on to this fuel reserve. Yes. Right. So the idea is you've got to flood the body with a ton of the good stuff and a ton of the building blocks and make sure that it, it you know, physically doesn't feel stressed any longer, that it's not in that preservation mode. And eventually with time, the body will turn its attention to releasing what it no longer needs or, or deems as essential. And that is you mentioned about fertility as well. So I often see that women who don't fall pregnant, but like typical type A personality who are incredible at their job, incredible yes. at so many things, but they don't have that really that ability to to switch down, to let their body know, okay, you can just sit back and relax mm-hmm. and have a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do mm-hmm. you see that often in your oh, clinic, fertility people? Yeah, that yeah we do. And, and, and again, a lot of times it ties back to this cortisol piece, right? And the type A personality, I think, you know, being a type A personality, it's, it's almost um, a classic setup for cortisol dysregulation. Um, you know, it's the, the nose to the grindstone, overachieving multitasker um, who over time seems to become a little bit disconnected from the physical body. So you can push with this, push with your head and fail to recognize that the body has taken a hit until you cannot ignore it any longer, right? And so, um, you know, from a fertility perspective, all that's happening is the body's redirecting its efforts toward the things that are essential for survival. And reproduction is not essential for survival. And interestingly, the infertility clinics often will give a hormone called DHEA to enhance fertility, but not recognizing seemingly why it actually works. Well, DHEA is a hormone that balances cortisol. Not really getting at the root of the problem. Yes, right? that's a big thing. And that's what you jo- do. That is mm-hmm. the main focus of your clinic. When someone walk in, you don't mm-hmm. just give that pill, but you say, why? Because mm-hmm. even if we fix the fertility now, that person will be at a higher risk of having postpartum depression. That yeah. person will be at a higher risk of other things later in life, so how do, and autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. So how do we fix the root cause now? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, sometimes it is necessary, and I can say this personally, um, I really had to crash and burn before I realized that I couldn't keep doing things the way that I was doing them, that I had to show up differently. And there was a huge blessing in that, for sure. Um, so I think, you know, the first step in managing your stress is actually understanding that there's a problem there and that there is a physiologic consequence to it. And taking a step back and asking yourself, okay, so how am I showing up in the world? And mm. do I really need to do it that way? Because in many ways, it, it's hard because when you are you know, uh, a type A personality, there are a lot of things about that personality type that will have served you well. 
And you serve our whole community very well with that personality, right? right? Because you are working hard, because you're seeing many patients, because you're so committed to each patient. Right. So on the one hand, it is amazing. It, right, but at the same time, it's the very same personality that will be killing you slowly, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, so we have to be able to recognize. And, and you know what's so, so amazing to me is that when... I, you know, I step back and I look at how I do things now versus how I would have done things, you know, 15 years ago. I'm way more productive oh, now than, than I ever was. And I'm less stressed about it. So, you know, we, we, we can convince ourselves that the way we do things, it has to be done this way until we're forced into a position of choosing differently. Now, fortunately, there are a lot of people that are really good at learning from other people's mistakes. Yes, that's the but, ideal. Yeah, that, that is perfect. But there is a lot of us out there that actually have to go through Make that process of crashing and burning also. themselves before we reinvent you know, what it all looks like. So in my particular case, yes, it was very um, important for me to make those mistakes, but that's exactly what has helped me identify in my patient population where somebody is at, mm. and you know can honestly say to them, "Hey, you know what? We got we got to take a look at this piece of it." And you know, and I think the other trap that we often fall into as well is believing that our personalities are set in stone, that our brains are hardwired. Mm. And um, Bruce Lipton has a great book um, about uh, oh, it's called. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll anyway, put it in the description. A, I'll find it out there in the exactly. description. But it, it's a great book that speaks to how the brain, in actual fact, is really quite plastic. Yes. Right? And so it just takes some retraining. Now, that retraining requires some effort, but the first step in retraining the brain is understanding that you are doing something, catching yourself in the moment, and redirecting your choice. And, you know, what we thought was hardwired, like if your default is anger, that pathway becomes very, very established. But if you can recognize in the moment that you are being angry and make a different choice, if you continuously make that different choice, eventually the anger pathway will fizzle out and you've created a new, healthier pathway. So that's pivotal. I almost want to just pause here. That that was a game changer for me when I realized that. So we see that, I remember when I was little, my mom always used to say that we have to teach music, languages, everything, because you have this young developing brain, you know, before five, you must be exposed to more languages. You know, you have to be exposed to music. Even with my babies in utero, my mom would be on my case, listening to music. My my kids were so little and we had them in music lessons because of that brain simulation. And then my mom came to me like completely surprised when she realized she's gone through something very stressful, went into a major depression and then realized, read up everything. She's very smart about um, neuroplasticity and realized that exactly the same thing we can do with someone after a stroke. We sit in hospital all the time, yes. right? After yeah. a patient have a stroke or lose function of half of the brain, we can teach the other half to take over some of those functions. And then exactly the same happens in your brain, and that's what you were talking about. Every day, there's neural pathways building, building. And you mentioned that anger, but it, it goes for so many things, even if mm-hmm. it's just an anxiety pathway or a negative pathway, yes. being pessimistic or whatever is your yep. pathways, you're strengthening that. It's like a stream that it, it's very hard for water to flow in a different direction. It's just easier to go in the big stream. That's right. But if it's your focus... And, you know, that's something our viewers will really gain a lot from. If you realize that that you have, con- it's not even control, but to be cognizant that you can change things. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have control. It's something that you're going to strengthen. Yeah. But you must be aware that you, yes. that it is 
within your power that you can do it. And then if you focus yes. on it, yeah. you can strengthen yeah. that. So that, that being present is really key and catching yourself in the moment. Even, even if it's not even catching your behaviors, but in catching the thought process, what is it that I'm, is actually going on in here? Because this, what's going on in here isn't healthy. I need to make a different choice. Right, surrendering—that's another big piece from you know, and just trusting that um, you know we can't control everything. So why put effort into trying to control everything, mm. right? And I think you know, I just again understanding that there's um, you know a much bigger plan out there. Oh, that's and, a big one. Yeah, yeah. So and that so that's sort of the management of the of stress. Um, so that's important. A, if someone comes through your door, you always have that lens on why did they come now? Right, right. And could this be triggered by stress? That's right. And so how did how did we get here? I mean, a lot of what I'm doing is asking why. Okay, but why? And mm. why, right? And so when you keep asking that why, you often will get at the root cause of it. And so, you know, a, a addressing that part of it, of course, is part of plugging the holes in your leaky bucket. But then we have to fill the mm. leaky bucket, right? And so that really speaks to more the physical body aspect and the physiologic consequences of the stress in our world. And again, whether that be emotional and psychological or whether it be physical stressors. And, uh, and fill, filling that, the physical body part of it is largely about testing and proving where somebody has deficiencies in nutrients, in hormones, where there's imbalances. And once those are identified, correcting for those deficiencies and those imbalances. And it's amazing what the body will do when you provide it what it needs. Um, but that's the challenge, right? We, in this day and age, um, you know, getting, fueling the body in a way that um, is adequate can be really hard to do for a bunch of different reasons, but um, including our food not being as nutrient. So that is something dense. big, which I didn't realize before I did more training in functional medicine, in integrative medicine, that even if you eat a perfectly organic diet here in Ontario, our food, our, our soil is depleted of magnesium, zinc. So even if you mm -hmm. invest, even if you are aware that you must eat healthy, that you, because a lot of people don't really know that you are what you eat. Yeah. So even if you are aware that you are that you eat and you put in everything and you eat. So, and since I realized that, I started testing my patients when they come to mm -hmm. hospital with something else, whatever they come with, I would test their magnesium, zinc, calcium levels, mm -hmm. and I would see that they're deficient. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of my patients, because they're admitted to hospital, are older patients, so it's geriatric patients. But then seeing that they are so kind of malnourished Absolutely. is it's devastating. It is, right? it is. I mean, the number of patients that we see here that have rickets levels of vitamin D or scurvy levels of vitamin C, right? Or, you know, magnesium that has dropped to the point where, you know, of course they can't have regular bowel movements. Yes, <laughs> right? and of sleep and relax yeah. and their gut is uptight because they don't have magnesium. Yeah. So, yeah. and we really push to say that you have to eat healthy. We, we don't want to push pills, but mm -hmm. then as you say that you do testing when someone walks through the mm -hmm. door and when there are deficiencies, yeah. you'll replenish that. Yeah. And part of the challenge too comes into when there's an underlying stress-related phenomena, that cortisol dysregulation, it impacts the gut as well, right? So you get into maldigestion, malabsorption, um, a leaky gut. Oh, that's a big right? one. Yeah. Um, you, you don't produce your brain neurotransmitters because, for example, you know, serotonin, 90% of it is produced in the gut. That's our happy hormone, right? And so the, the gut actually gets dragged into this whole equation very early on in the process. And so when it comes time to, um, to treat somebody, you have to factor the gut into the process as well. So, so not only is it a problem and we're not absorbing quite as well what we should, um, 
it can limit our ability to, to absorb nutrients. <laughs> yeah. And and that yeah. is quite critical to understand. So someone might come to you and say, oh, they feel depressed. And then you say, no, no, but let's look at the gut. Mm-hmm. And then they say, but my gut is fine. <laughs> but then as you mentioned, yeah. that your happy hormone serotonin gets secreted 90% of that in your gut. And your, mm-hmm. in your gut has all this bacteria, we call it your microbiome, loads and loads and loads of bacteria. And they've been seeing that if you eat more, which we call a standard American diet, where you mm-hmm. eat more processed foods, foods that are made in a factory, then it feeds bad bacteria. If you eat more prebiotic foods like kimchi, kefir, sauerkraut, mm. those feeds like your good bacteria. And, and that's incredible to know that my mood, whether I'm happy or sad today, yeah. gets influenced by the bugs in my gut. You know, Absolutely. that is quite a mind shift to, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. understand that. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, part of the challenge too is recognizing that connection, um, particularly when it comes to foods that our bodies are finding insulting, right? Because food sensitivity is a big problem in this day and age. And really, it's because of the stress that creates a leaky gut, which then you develop the food sensitivity from that. And so this this um, whole idea of the body sort of rejecting yes. <laughs> some, some of the, even some of the good stuff yes. um, becomes a problem as well too. So it, it, it gets kind of complicated in management when yes. you have to factor that in as well. And that's very individualized, right? And you could mm-hmm. be that you can eat eggs with no problem when you're all rested on holidays, you had no eggs problem of eggs your whole life, right. but now that you're burned out and stressed, now your body's reacting to yeah. eggs. Yeah. So you might need to stop yeah. that now. And you may not even know it too, because a lot of times um, it's, it's what we call an IgG, delayed hypersensitivity reaction. So you could eat an egg, but you don't experience any of symptoms until 48 to 72 hours later. So that's really hard to connect those dots. dots. And sometimes those um, reactions aren't perhaps obvious allergic reactions. It might be that you are fatigued, right? That's your hair is falling out, right? You may have yes. a funny rash on the back of your arms, but you, but you don't connect the dots yes. as that's being a food sensitivity. Yes, mm-hmm. I think that makes it trickiest. And that's why you say that you do testing. So mm-hmm. I found when I was just purely in family practice, people will come in and say there's something off. And I will run our typical test, that mm-hmm. is hip cover test, that's a full blood count, thyroid, iron, and then say, oh, everything is normal. But then the patient will say, no, but I'm not no, normal. No, I'm not normal. <laughs> and I'll yeah. say, oh, but I'm paying for you normal, you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. no, it's so true. So, yeah. so if a family doc said, okay, everything is normal and the patient is still looking for answers, that's when they'll typically come to you. And then what would you typically test for then? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that, that is a perfect example. And thyroid, you see all day long, right? People will Google their symptoms and they'll come up with hypothyroidism. Doctors will check their thyroid levels. So Everything okay. looks okay. doesn't mean that there isn't actually an underlying thyroid issue there. It just depends on how you look at it, right? And so if you were to take their body temperature, you would come up often with a low body temperature, which is really the cortisol Inter, the stress hormone interfering with our thyroid function. So thyroid actually is um, really is a big problem, but you'll be told by you know physicians, no, no, everything's okay, when actual fact there is an underlying issue there. So it, you know it really is dependent on what somebody's presenting symptoms are and what we test. Um, but it is largely blood work, and the blood work is meant to pick up on thyroid, it's meant to pick up on micronutrient status, some intermediate hormones that nobody's ever heard of <laughs> before. Um, so you don't only test for hormones during menopause or fertility, you yeah. test for hormones during other phases Exactly. Well. And, and the blood work is really meant to capture a certain 
classifications. In the conventional medical model, of course, we do a lot of blood work and we do a lot of imaging. Um, but there is a whole realm of functional testing out there that is far superior in many ways. So particularly, talk about that a bit. <clears throat> yeah, and so one of the, the very important tests that we use every day, and quite frankly, I'm not sure what I would do without it, is a dried urine hormone testing. And so that I can use to measure cortisol and the byproducts of it. I can look at four different points over the day, which is also critical so that you can see how the body Because if you just cortisol. test my cortisol now, it might look normal. Mm -hmm. But if you test it at four different spots, you can kind of see a curve. When do I secrete too much and when do I not exactly. secrete enough right. cortisol? Yeah, and, and that ties into um, you know the, the typical conventional approach as well. If there's concerns around cortisol, yes, they will do urine, but they'll do a 24-hour urine, and that's an average. So you can have highs and lows, but at the end, it looks like... You're normal. And then also as a general family physician with cortisol, I learn about Cushingson syndrome and Addison's, mm. which are really at the spectrum, the 1% here yeah, and the 1% right. there. But then there's a lot of people in between, majority of people are fine. Yes. Yeah. But then you have people here yeah, on the spectrum that when family doctors, their cortisol, they say, no, you're good. That's right. But you can still have significant symptoms. Yes. And then that's where you come in to treat this very bulk of symptoms. Yeah, that's yeah. not the 1% on, that's that right. needs to see an that's endocrinologist. Right. Yes. Then they need to see their endocrinologist. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that cortisol piece, when you do land in these you know, shoulder areas, um, that's, that's the bomb that goes off, mm -hmm. right? And because cortisol is so foundational, it really touches everything, mm -hmm. right? It touches thyroid. It aggravates the sex hormones. It touches the gut. Um, you know, really nothing. Your brain, brain yeah, fog. You bet. Hard yeah. time remembering things. Yeah. So the, the testing part of it is is actually really critical in mm. all of this. Um, so yes, I need to look at cortisol because if we don't get that one figured out, we're going to be chasing our tail with every other hormone. Um, but also on the sex hormone piece of it. So not only does the testing that I do um, look at the three major forms of estrogen as an example, but then all the metabolites of estrogen. And those are equally important in you know, uh, uh, somebody's risk profile. And they may be in harm's way and not know it. And even better, we can take you out of harm's way. Um, but also when it comes to prescribing, if I need to prescribe hormones, I need to understand what your body does with those hormones so that I'm not putting you in needless, needlessly in harm's way yes. either, right? So um, having that detail, I mean, you can't get that from blood work, um, is absolutely critical as far as I'm concerned. Um, and there's just a lot of shortcomings. I mean, you can measure hormones in a lot of different ways. Uh, there are just better ways to do it where you can gain more information and practice more safely. So for example, with the Dutch testing that I do, the dried urine hormone testing, um, that allows me to give considerably lower doses of hormones mm. than even the pharmaceutical grade level of hormones that are out there. Yes. Right? Um, and even compared to some of my counterparts who are using blood work to measure hormones, it's you will always underestimate the hormone level and therefore you will always overdose. Yeah, right? You give, yeah. Yes. And that is quite something, we should maybe touch on that. So there was this Women's Health Initiative where they looked at um, hormone replacement in menopause. But then what happened at that point in time, they wanted to see if it's harmful to give hormones to women. But then what happened is they said, well, if they do a study and they give perimenopausal women, 50 years old, hormones, of course, minimal people are going to die. So let's give this hormone to 90-year-old women and see what is what's going to happen. So they did it to people with significant smokers, significant risk factors, gave them, and none of those people had um, any menopausal symptoms, 
gave them hormonal, and then they had a lot of side effects, and there were people who died, got blood mm-hmm. clots and died. So, and that, this happened already, was it in the 90s, 2000? And that really put a pull, a halt on hormone replacement in menopause. So I find a lot of people and got a lot of publicity. Mm-hmm. So there's been, in the medical world, a lot of discussion around that study. Why was it not a good study? We understand why they did the study the way they did it, mm-hmm. to, to not test 50-year-old women, but to to test it in a... But, but this is not something we typically see. We generally don't test a study on people who don't even have symptoms, you know? Mm-hmm. So... So, but the caveat now with that is that a lot of people who I see who come through my door go through menopause, have significant symptoms, but they say, oh, I just don't want hormones because they're concerned of the mm-hmm. risk because of all the publicity that that specific study had like years ago. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you approach it if someone comes to you and they say, oh, I, I have these symptoms, but I don't want hormones? How, how do mm-hmm. you approach mm-hmm. it? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, there has to be education that goes into that. It's a big, big part of my practice is the educational um, piece of it because people need to make informed decisions about what is going to work for them, um, but also to understand the pluses and, and the minuses. And so the Women's Health Initiative study was in 2002, and, and it was a massive study, um, but it really actually didn't give us any more information that we didn't already know. I've been in gynecology long enough to know what the studies were leading up to it. It was just that this was a big, massive study that nobody could ignore. And, and women, rightly so, should have come off of their conventional hormone replacement therapy because of the increased risks. So the, yes, absolutely challenges you know, in the study design, um, but there was also some important information that came out of that as well. The problem is, is that menopause never went away. Women were still banging on their doctor's door saying, do something, this is miserable. And you know, so the, the solution to that was to reintroduce hormones into the mix but let's do it on a limited basis. And the challenge with introducing it on a limited basis is the risk actually, and specifically for breast cancer, the, the risk happened happens within the first year of administration, right? And so to think limiting it five years is okay, for example, and or cutting it off at the age of 59, um, in many ways uh, really doesn't speak to the, the much bigger picture and some of the challenges that, that um, we saw with that study. Um, and so really it comes down to um, helping people understand the difference between a synthetic conventional hormone yes. versus a bioidentical hormone, which matches our body, um, but also understanding that that bioidentical hormone is synthetic. It goes through a synthetic process as well, but the whole point is that it ends up with a hormone that matches what we've just proven your body to be missing and replacing it at levels that is meant to achieve balance between hormones, because that's hormones 101, um, but to achieve balance within a physiologic range, right? There's no point in hammering a body with tenfold higher doses of hormones than, it's, than is needed. Yeah, and that's why you do that testing, right? Mm-hmm. If I mm-hmm. come through the door, you don't just give me the hormones. You first see, do I actually need those hormones? That's right, exactly. And then we're replacing accordingly. Um, and then we're monitoring, and that's the other thing. And we're monitoring with a test that gives us a degree of detail um, that you just can't get from blood work. So, um, yeah. So there's a, there's a whole process behind it, and I and I am a big believer in um, you know letting patients decide what what they're going to do with their body, but that I'm in a role as educator um, and having the um, the knowledge and the expertise. And that's to, why I come to you, right? And you've to, had this years of experience, yeah, and to relay yeah. this information, mm-hmm. and so that you know I can help you make the decision. But if for whatever reason, I mean, believe you me, there, there's no point in 
<laughs> you know, rubbing your estrogen cream on every morning and worrying that you're yes. you're going to you know develop breast cancer because that defeats the whole purpose, yes. right? Yeah, so sure. um, you know, the, and to, and to clarify, um, you know, it really there is a big difference between a bioidentical hormone and a conventional hormone, and the study was largely done on conventional hormone replacement therapy and not on the bioidentical yes, hormones. Yes. Um, they, and they didn't, didn't even use the hormones which they used in that specific study now. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, so it, yeah, those things exactly. should be kept into perspective. Yes, yes. yeah, indeed. indeed. And then the same, what I also then see a lot are men who want testosterone replacement. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that is quite a big thing. So when I do just in my general family practice clinic, I can test for testosterone and then they'll, I'll say, no, but I think your testosterone levels look within normal limits. But they're like, oh, doc, I need it for doing that bike ride, you know, lifting those weights for mm. uh, libido, for those things. Yeah. What's your approach? Uh, yeah, well, nine good. times out of ten, when a guy comes in thinking that they've got low testosterone, they actually don't. And it's the underlying cortisol issue that is the problem, which can undermine testosterone yes. and, can, and can cause some subtle changes so that they appreciate those changes. So I'm not suggesting that they're not... You know, feeling those symptoms, but you have to address the root cause, right? And maybe that's exactly. And the vast majority of times, it's as simple. And guys are really easy to manage. By the way, they get better <laughs> just right. like that. Yeah, that <laughs> uh, it, it really often is just about te- treating the cortisol piece, and then they feel good, and their testosterone probably has rebounded a little bit, right? But it's enough to get them back to where they are without even having to give testosterone. Now, I'm not suggesting that I don't give testosterone. There are situations, of course, where it is is warranted, but it speaks to the very same thing that we just spoke about: is that monitoring mm. and understanding what somebody's levels are and how their body breaks down the testosterone becomes important. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, that's critical. And then, so we spoke now a lot about cortisol, how it, it affects your thyroid, it affects your gut, your brain, your, your hormones. And then, so after you test it, so how, how do you manage that afterwards? When you, someone came through your door and you said, yes, whatever symptom you had, your big root cause is cortisol, mm-hmm. what must mm-hmm. they do? Yeah, so identifying the whys behind it, how did you end up getting here is certainly one of them. And that's, as I say, it's part of part plugging the holes. You're in, your in a toxic relationship. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> you, you may want to shed that 200 pounds. <laughs> right? Yeah. Funny. Yeah. Um, so that, that really does become important in the surrender piece of it at all. But on the physical body aspect of it, once we've proven where somebody's deficiencies are, it's just a matter of repleting them, which you know, quite honestly, there isn't really anything fancy about what we're doing. Um, sometimes the route of administration isn't so straightforward because, again, you can take things uh, by mouth, by but mouth. you have a leaky gut, so you're not going to absorb it. So you might need e- um, intravenous replacement. Correct. Yeah. So we do use a lot of intravenous vitamin and nutrient therapy, and the advantage there is that you are bypassing the gut, so that you get 100% bioavailability at the cellular level. Right? Because whenever we put something in our mouth, we automatically are wiping out 20% with the first pass effect through the liver. So you can get 100% bioavailable at the cellular level. And we can give higher doses of vitamins than we ever could by mouth because we don't have to worry about the side effects. Yes. Right? You could maybe take six, eight grams of vitamin C before you got diarrhea. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> so but IV, you can give considerably higher yes. doses without, without that consequence. And so it's a very effective way of getting somebody back in the game Quickly. Quicker. Yeah. Now, quickly is a relative term because, again, we're leaky buckets. Depends on how empty your leaky bucket was and how much you continue to leak. Um, but those IVs can go a long way and very quickly at bringing somebody's levels back up into place. So that's one um, sort of targeted way of 
um, you know, assessing what somebody's individual nutrient deficiencies are. It doesn't mean that we don't use oral supplements at home because, quite frankly, getting an IV once a week isn't enough to keep things up to to, to um, the and, levels and that you need them at. But. In any case, not going to keep IV lifelong. Once this person is back yeah. at baseline, they're going to continue on an yeah. oral supplement. Yeah, continue on an oral supplement. It, it, does depend. You know what? We, there certainly are people out there who, you know, get feeling well by correcting the physical body and they never make the adjustment here, yeah. <laughs> right? For whatever reason. And, you know, and they will come back and they get their IVs every four to six weeks. Mm. It's not really getting at the root of it. Um, but it is amazing how it's much easier for people to follow a physical body protocol than it is to take a look yes. in the mirror. Yes. But that's hard. Mm-hmm. So do you and refer people to counselors, psychologists, mm-hmm. when yep. you say? Yeah, and we've got um, a bunch of people on our team that, okay. that uh, look Perfect. after that as well. So sexuality therapist and counseling, as you say, holistic nutritionist. Um, so we really call on the people. Each one of our patients sees a medical doctor as well as a naturopathic doctor. That's a given in the appointment, and that's a really nice combination to have and, and truly is integrative medicine. And then depending on what the situation is, then we will pull on you know, whatever other um, support practitioners are, are needed in the mix. Now, I recently spoke to a mentor who I really look up to. He's like high-functioning, very successful guy. And he told me, everyone needs a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> his life, his business, everything turned around when he started seeing a counselor. <laughs> everyone just needs a counselor. Yeah, right. And I th- sometimes it's easy if you have someone to bounce things off. I'm blessed that I've two sisters and a mom and we speak to each other every day and we have that soundboard to, mm-hmm. to bounce things right. off. But a lot of people don't have that soundboard. So even if you do not think that you have problems, yeah. to have that counselor, someone with experience, yeah. you can bounce things off, not just your body that yeah. says, you know, but, but someone who really understands, have knowledge, wisdom yeah. to bounce things off. That's yeah. very helpful, yeah. yes, to yeah. have that. A more objective a more objective view of it as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. And as far as management, again, of, of course, all those other things that we can do, right? Like herbal remedies that are important in supporting the physical body, hormones where hormones are needed, um, right? So there's just a lot of, it just depends on what the individual issue yes, and concern is. Yeah. If you look in your body, your cortisol hormone gets secreted from your adrenal cortex that on, sits on top of your kidneys. So mm-hmm. you can give those herb, herbs that specifically support your adrenals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then what do you do in your life to support yourself? Yeah, I think for me, um, that whole surrender piece mm. Is key. Must be. You mentioned a couple of times yeah. now. And I'm really going to focus on because that's never been a focus in my life, the yeah. surrender. I'm, yeah, going, yeah. I'm learning a lot from you. I'm going to make that my focus. Yeah, it, it, it is, um, you know, just sort of trusting that things happen the way they happen and when they happen for a reason. Mm. And we can get ourselves all worked up mm. because we don't understand what's on the other side of that. And, um, you know, so I, I think it is important that. Um, we understand that we can spin our wheels and invest a ton of energy into something that we can't control anyway. Mm. So if we can identify the things that we can't control and surrender those, and I and surrender doesn't mean that you don't take action. Surrender is just trusting mm. that there's a bigger plan. And um, and then taking action, and, and action often sometimes is not... <laughs> Is finding that balance. So it's the there's inaction yes. um, as well that is required, and to strike that right balance. And to you know, for, for me personally, I've become very sensitive to um, feeling the physical symptoms that I used to be numb to. 
many, many years ago. But I, I, I know now what it feels like to feel really crappy. And I know now what it feels like to feel really good. And so when things are starting to go off, I can identify it much, much, much more quickly and pull back in whatever area that I need to pull back in and, and strike that balance. And whether it is finding some alone time, um, you know, listening to music, I talked about, you know, on, yes. on my drive in here. And sometimes it's just really in the simple things that um, can bring you down a notch. Do you ever sing with when you listen to your music? Do I, do I ever sing? Sing with. You should. That's oh, something yeah, I yeah, learned yeah. now. Yeah. So when you sing out loud, yeah. you stimulate your vagus nerve. Ah. So and that really helps to um to stimulate your parasympathetic system ah. that counters your stress response. So there you go. Yes. Maybe that's what's <laughs> happening. I'm, I'm doing so it and I didn't even when, know why. So when you listen to your music, you must like sing very loud. Yeah, even maybe. if the other people are listening. Right. Yeah, you must just sing well, I loud. dance a lot in the car. <laughs> See, and that's good. Dancing, yes. Oh, good. Thank you so much, Christy. It was so, so wonderful to chat with you. Thank you, Thank you to our viewers. Thanks for joining us today. It was, it was wonderful to spend time with Dr. Christy Prowse. I'll have her links in the description below. Email, send a message below. If you have any questions, any comments, we love to hear from our audience. And I always try to answer all the questions. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this, please forward it to someone who will enjoy watching this. Please hit like and subscribe and to get notifications once a new YouTube video comes out. Take care. Thank you for joining us for Health and Wellness Talk with Dr. Daniela Stein. Subscribe to our YouTube channel today. Connect with Dr. Stein at www.daniellastein.com. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider. Never disregard medical advice or delay seeking it because of something you have heard on this talk show. Remember, you were created to thrive.